Hi, my name is Alistair Madden and you're listening to the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. This is the sixth episode of the podcast and we are really delighted with how well things have been going so far. We really appreciate the feedback, the feedback's been really good and uh, we, we really appreciate the support as well. In terms of this episode, we once again picked a topic, each a topic of interest. We looked into that topic and then reported back to the group, discussing it for 15 minutes or so. Michael looked at Gian Piero Gasparini, the tactical mastermind behind Atalanta's stunning success in Serie A this season. I looked at the politics behind Roman Abramovich's ownership of Chelsea Football Club. I looked at the source of his wealth, his relationship with Vladimir Putin and the consequences of the Salisbury nerve agent attack on Abramovich's ability to live and work in the United Kingdom. So some really fascinating political backstories there. And then finally, Barlow discussed the quite brilliant Danny Alves. We asked Barlow, is Danny Alves the best right back ever? And Barlow's answer was, in brief, yes. So do listen on um, to find out more about each of these stories. Hopefully um, you learn a thing or two or maybe even three. Each section is about 15 to 20 minutes long. The running order uh, is there for you to have a look at in the description. Yeah, and you know, all I think that's left to say is if you don't already follow us on Twitter, do head over there uh, and give us a follow at RTNFootball. Be sure to give you a follow back. Hope you're all staying safe. Hope you're all staying sensible. Thank you. And welcome to the sixth episode of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you're all well. Hope you're all staying safe and sensible. I'm joined once again by Michael Jones and Rudy Barlow. How are you doing, Michael? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Ali. Um, I, I guess, you know, over the last two weeks, there's not been too much to report on. Um, it's mainly been a case of working from home typing up some content and um, yeah just preparing for the show really amongst just some light reading and keeping yourself sane with other activities I guess. How about yourself? Yeah you know I've been good I'm um, working from home as well keeping myself busy doing plenty of reading and um, getting out for that state sanctioned exercise once once a day as well so yeah um, you know keep myself busy with plenty of, of different activities which is it's been good. Barlow you've been keep yourself busy as well you've started your own football site do you want to tell us a bit about that yeah well I thought I'd better do something with my time seeing as I've got so much of it at the moment and uh yeah I started, started a football site called postage stamp football um you can find it at um at stamp football on twitter or you can find it at uh, wordpress.postagestampfootball.com um and yeah it's just a a site it delves into sort of a bit of analysis a bit of um it can be a tactical piece or a piece on sort of a, the more institutional side of the game and i've also been doing sort of match day um experiences and so not essentially doing match reports i'm more sort of looking into the uh a bit of depth behind what's been going on and the cultural surroundings of the place so for instance most recently i did a Peñarol Danubio in Montevideo and uh, I had a wee bit of a look about a look around um, Uruguay and what makes them so successful so um, check that out if you're interested. Yeah Barlow no, I had, a, had a, a brief look at both your 
Uruguayan article and your article on River Plate, and that is on the to-do list to go and read them back in more detail. But certainly the response you've had to the River Plate article on Twitter, um, particularly significant. Um, I think, you know, South American football, for many of us in Europe, it, it's almost an area that a lot of people aren't fully aware of. And, and you will know, having experienced it firsthand, just how passionate the fans are over there. And the football itself, while perhaps tactically is lacking in certain areas, it's still fascinating. And um, yeah, so if you're interested in that, if you're interested in football analysis generally, then do check out um, Barlow's new football site and with the details as he's just said. So without further ado, we're, we're going to get into this week's three topics. We've each chosen a topic once again. Michael has looked at um, the tactical mastermind behind Atalanta. Um, a certain Mr Gasparini. I've looked at the politics behind Roman Abramovich and his takeover at Chelsea. So we've looked at, you know, why the fall of communism in Russia essentially facilitated the the, the rise of Chelsea um, in, in an indirect way. And then Barlow's going to argue that Danny Alves is the best right back ever. Um, so plenty for us to discuss, plenty for you to kind of mull over and have a think about as well as the listener. So I think you know, the best place for us to start, Michael, is with Atalanta and Gian Piero Gasparini. Now, obviously, you know, we're all aware of the, the success that Atalanta have had this season. They've scored 70 goals in 25 Serie A matches, which is incredible. But can you take us back to kind of the beginning of Gasparini's career and what he was like as a player? And then we'll move on to his his talents and his um, approach as a coach. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Gasparini, born 1958 in uh, Grugliasso, Italy, which is about nine miles away from Turin. Uh, he grew, grew up through um, the Juventus Academy, uh, where he did make his first team debut at the age, of, I think it was about 20, um, but only uh, sparingly in Copa Italia games before he left to get uh, first-team footballers' opportunities as Spass and was playing mainly across Serie C1. Um, and then he eventually started playing in Serie B with Pescara, who got promoted in 1987 to Serie A. He had a few years at the highest level. He then retired in 1993 with uh, Vita Pescaro. Um, he was, a yeah, being a product of the Juventus Academy, he... Uh, actually at the same time as Paolo Rossi, of course, World Cup winner for Italy in 1982. Um, he decided and, you know, he decided to go into management and not the most exciting player, diminutive midfielder, uh, standing at about five foot nine, uh, scoring only one goal across his career, which you think in this current Atalanta team, he'd probably be on, you know, he'd have a zero, but next to that one by now. Um he decided to go into coaching. So initially he went to Juventus, uh, he went back to his roots where he grew up as a player and he became the under-14 coach at Juventus in 1994, remained there for nine years. Uh, by 1998, he was the under-20 coach. It must be said, it's not the most successful period for the Juventus Academy. And the Juventus Academy in turn, is, compared to some of the other academies in Italy, hasn't always been as successful. Um some of the players of note that I've seen, I mean, Corrado Gravi, I don't know if you remember him, Blackburn striker, um, Tommaso Rocci, or Rocky, maybe the most um, successful player, scored about 82 goals for 
Lazio, Andreas Isaksson, PSV, Sweden, Man City keeper, and Matt Vieri, the brother of Christian Vieri, who is probably the least successful at that point, but gives you an idea of maybe the lack of quality committee at the time. Um, and yeah, that's when he decided to take up. It was 2003 where he made his first move and decided to start coaching first team football. Uh, he went to Crotone and Surrey C1, got them promoted in his first season. Um, we started to see signs of that football that he wanted to play. Um, and then he actually got sacked the second season with them 16, uh, 17th in the table at the time, the 2004-2005 season. But it got rehired, which we'll talk about a bit more. Something that goes a bit more. And then his last season was uh, they finished ninth, uh, the best ever, joint best ever finish, doing a double over Serie B winners Atalanta. Yeah, Michael, you said there that in his time at Crotone, we, we began to see signs of the style of football he wanted to play. How would you summarise that in a couple of, of sentences? You know, because obviously people are aware of how Atalanta are so devastating going forward. But if you had to summarise in a couple of sentences, Gasparini's style that we began to see emerge in those early days, the early 2000s at Crotona, how would you summarise that? Um, I mean, I'd say high press, 3-4-3, um, exhaust the opposition, force them into mistakes, don't occupy the middle areas of the pitch too much. A lot of the running, a lot of the overloads, either on the edge of the area in front of the defence or... In the wide areas, the ball's often carried over the midway point, over the wide areas rather than the central areas, contrary to what a lot of passing teams like to do. Yeah. But they do like to keep the ball down. Um, very effective, yeah, overloading maybe teams' weaker points, but maybe teams have weaker individuals. Yeah, so so, so, so after, um, you know, a spell at Crotone, moves to Genoa, who are obviously the, the oldest club in Italian football, Michael. And and what what, what happens there? How, how does he get on? Uh, he gets on really well to begin with. He takes on a team that you know almost went out of business at the turn of millennium. Um, had some higher profile managers, hadn't been as successful. Luigi Di Canio, Roberto Donadoni, hadn't really worked out. But uh, he was given the job in 2006, just after getting Crotone to that record finish. And got them promoted straight away with Napoli. 0-0 ended the 06-07 season final day, which saw both these sleeping giants return to Serie A and then an impressive 10th showing in the first season of 7-8 it was this 2008 transfer window that was really um, significant because after that first season in Serie A they made some really good sales which allowed them to bring some excellent players in which shaped the future of Gasparini and Genoa for the foreseeable um, Pariello went to AC Milan, uh, Bovo went to Palermo and um, coincidentally as we talk about Dani Alves later is replacement at Sevilla, Abdullah Konko, went from Genoa to Sevilla for about, they were all about 7 million. And the players they were able to bring in, they brought in Diego uh, Diego Melito, who of course was seen to be Champions League, the goal scorer, final winner. Uh, Thiago Motta, free agent, his career gone off a bit. Crescito, and then some excellent young talent, uh, Socrates brought him from Greece for the first time, and Andrea Ranocchia uh, from Arezzo in Serie C. Um, 08 09 season, they were agonizingly close to getting Champions League football. They missed out on head to head record Fiorentina, had beat Juventus and stuff on the way. And they lost Motta and Melito to Mourinho. Mourinho had said Gasparini was the hardest tactician he'd fought against in Italy. It was like playing a game of chess against him. And 
And Mourinho, obviously a big time, signed two of the best players, which kind of derailed the Genoa movement for Gasparini in his first spell at the club. They brought in the likes of Hernan Crespo, Luca Toni over the next two seasons below. So I think the lack of mobility ultimately cost him. Results did start to suffer and they did make a gradual decline down the table. Mm-hmm. And it was sacked at the start of the 10-11 season uh, with the owner, um, who he did get on with very well, um, Preziosi. Uh, deciding to sack him, going for a much more conservative Balladini, saying, I don't need a phenomenon just at the moment, just something simple. So, uh, yeah, mate, if you're looking for something simple, it's not your cup of tea. Yeah, so, so Gasparini on the whole, relatively successful, you would say, at Genoa. Um, what, what next for, for this kind of master tactician with, with an eye for, for flair and, and forward devastation? What happened after he, he leaves Genoa? Yeah, well, this is the really interesting bit because he he takes a few months off and then in the summer into Milan after missing a, after winning the Champions League a year later, not a successful season, and then in need of a new manager, Leonardo has walked away. They initially go for Marcelo Bielsa. He doesn't want to go, can't pay him enough money, and for other reasons that we'll get on to. And Villas-Boas, um, again, they well, they could pay Bielsa enough money, not enough for Villas-Boas. Moratti opted for Gasparini. Um, but this was an aging into Milan squad, and as we discussed, you know we like Gasparini needs this high press, you know high high voltage Italian team that's going to do lots of running and stuff. This team just wasn't built for it. It was an awful start. Five games in, um, Snyder didn't know where to use him. Was putting him out as a winger or stuff like this. Uh, they drew two games or drew one game and lost four. It was atrocious. Uh, it led to his sacking with Maratti, Nino Milan chairman. He sort of tightened the purse strings a bit um, because of financial fair play coming into play that season. Uh, they also, and Maratti thought that Gasparini would eventually go to a back four, whereas Gasparini thought Maratti would eventually buy into his football and philosophy. So it was never really set for a sort of a happy marriage. And it's kind of interesting looking back because the reason that Bielsa actually declined the Inter job was because he had the offers from Inter and Atletico. Inter paying him a lot more, but he wasn't confident he could transform Inter's playing style to how he wanted them to play, whereas Bilbao were a match made in heaven for him. So he decided to go for Bilbao, even though it's a less glamorous job. Um, and maybe, you know, Gasparini could have looked at that a bit, but Gasparini was certainly a bit unlucky during his time in Inter Milan. Um, he said, you know, he didn't think it was always going to be a quick fix, wanting more time to get over things and, you know, fix the players into his style of play. Also, players like Julio Cesar, Lucio were out of form, and Michael and Nagatoma, natural wing backs, were both injured. Um, he didn't really get much of a chance, I and mean, you can never pay a good manager after five games. Yeah, yeah, you know, I think, you know, I've, in my notes here, it was, it was four losses and one draw, as you, as you said, Michael, and I think. Any manager after five games, you, you're not going to get a full impression of their abilities. And when, when you take into account, as you're saying, all the injuries and the fact that it was an ageing squad, this was a process that, that was never going to happen, even in one season, arguably, um, let alone five games. That could well have been you know, the nail in the coffin for Gasparini's coaching career, given how disastrous um, it was. But he did manage to recover from that and, and he took on a role at Palermo. Michael, what happened there? Yeah, he, Palermo um, didn't go well for him. He was in for about 11 games, won three, got sacked, rehired again. Um, you know, this is now the second time that it happened. 
Palermo, they're famous for firing, hiring and firing. Uh, he then lasted two games, drew one and lost one. At this point, he did come across what was important, though. He, he did come across uh, Ilicic, and this would sort of set the foundations for their relationship at Atalanta um, in years to come, which is another theme we'll get on to talking about. Uh, this ultimately led to his return to Genoa in the, at the end of the season, and he, this was where he started to rebuild his career. So, so you say you mentioned that you know when he eventually returns to Genoa in in, in twenty thirteen that he he rebuilds his his career. What exactly does does he do to to rebuild his career when when he's when he's there? Yeah, he does a few things. I mean, he's already a lot of the players are already um, already know what he's about. The chairman's always even after sacking him. The chairman spoke of him very highly, um, Preziosi. Um, but he got them, he straight away, he reverted back to that football he wanted to play, 3-4-3. He knew he had the owner's belief, unlike Maratti at Inter Milan. Um, and they did really well, you know. That it was a bit of a slow start, 14th in the first season. But again, that second season always seemed to be one of the better ones, uh, where they ended up finishing sixth. They're only five points off Fiorentina again in uh, the, for the Champions League. And they got the 100th win over him. And he just seemed to, he had those players and a, a really interesting quote, a really good quote I like um, is after the inter, uh, after they beat AC Milan under Pippo Enzaghi. Uh, Enzaghi had said, you know, we unraveled due to the press, but Luca Antonelli, who later went on to sign for Milan, um, who scored the winning goal for Genoa, was like, it really summed up that Genoa team. And he said, I, I am a normal player, but we play with our heart and balls. And um, it was just, it was just, you know, that's probably symptomatic of what a lot of the players are like in these teams. Yeah, um, Michael, I, t- I, t- I totally um, agree with you. That's a really good quote. And I think, you know, the, the one theme um, throughout Gasparini's successful side, certainly, is, is that, you know, the, it's the system rather than the players within that system, which is so important because, you know, plenty of players um, who have worked extremely well under Gasparini have gone elsewhere and it hasn't worked for them. Um certainly hasn't worked for them as well as it worked for them under Gasparini. So that, that quote kind of um, really uh, sums up perfectly just how Gasparini approaches um, you know the coaching game and, and certainly you know we'll get on to it. Um, you know I think now's a good point perhaps to move on to, to his move to Atalanta and and perhaps the reasons for his success um, this season and in previous seasons. I think a lot of that goes down to his ability to instill a system that the players believe in and and can perform to as well. Would you agree with that, Michael? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we talked about the tactics. Atalanta are so much more flexible than they may appear to the club and I just having this formation that we're sort of back from quite quick transitions and stuff. I mean, they're really good at overloading outside the area. Um, The energy levels they display are just phenomenal. But, it's such fluid systems that he installs, and I think players must enjoy, the, you know, playing the, that kind of football so much. I mean, some of the sort of uh, rotation positional plays it can be seen where you might get your centre back. Uh, so let's say Palomino for this instance, or though he does normally play as a sweeper, um, he could go to right wing back. Martin Darun could drop into centre back. Um, one of the right forwards could drop in deep to the centre midfield and the right wing back could go to the right forward. 
And um, that was actually seen when Hatabawa scored the goals against Valencia in the first leg of the Champions League. Um, but I think that was a, that's a big thing at Atalanta as well. You know, what he did actually build some of his success on and what you can see with some players returning to Atalanta. Players obviously really enjoyed playing for him. Um, well, same with Vilicic, uh, Thiago Motta. I mean, it, we go back to our first episode and, you know, we're looking at Thiago Motta's 2-7-2 formation. And the, definitely from, you know, when you look at the tactical breakdown of the stuff Motta was trying to do, there are real similarities between uh, the Gasparini style of football what Motta tried to implement. Yeah, Bala, sorry. Just wondering, you we've obviously you're talking about Thiago Motta and sort of Gasparini's wider influence on Italian football. Seen Sari ball, which is a term I also hate because mm-hmm. it's not just Sari that plays like that. But yeah, we've seen Sari ball as well. Um, do you think that Gasparini is going to have a wider influence on Italian football, or do you think it's very much it'll be left to Atlanta? The common criticism for him is, and it's. I think it's a harsh one because it's drawn so easily just from those five games at Inter. But there is, you could make a case for it, is that when he has had bigger names to deal with, maybe arguably better technical players, although it's evident that Ilicic and Gomez are sensational technical players, they've not come from that really elite, privileged footballing background, uh, rich academies and stuff like this. Um, They think that the players just wouldn't be able to make use of this system as much because they wouldn't be able to do the harder bits um, you know, all the maybe the dirty bits of the game to make it look beautiful as an end product as much. I'm not sure that's true. I'd love to see him do it. Uh, his first spell at Genoa, when we're looking at the likes of Hernan Crespo, Luca Toni come in, maybe pointing to it. And actually, his, um, his last season at Genoa in his second spell, a lot they got a lot of young players on loan who, you look at them on paper, look perfect for the system, but it just didn't work and it unsettled the team. And these raw players from quite prestigious academy. So you've got Diego Laxo, uh, Suso, Liverpool, Churchy, who was on loan from Atletico Madrid, Olivier Uncham, just before he'd gone to Celtic, uh, so on Manchester City's books, it was fun. Zamaili had been at Napoli for a few years. So maybe it is those players that are a bit more harder to convince, but if he gets to them first, he seems to do well. So I'd like to see him in charge of the Italy team right now, because it's a really young Italy team. And he probably would have the time as an international manager to imprint those ideas and it'd be a nice relief from day-to-day club football. Yeah, uh, M- Michael, the, the thing that, that really gets me is, is that he seems to, to perform better at sides who aren't really kind of heavy hitters, shall, shall we say, because obviously um, he goes to Inter and that just doesn't work for him for whatever reason. Um, you know, Atalanta, you know, they're a side to have been relegated and promoted five times since 1991 they're kind of almost like West Brom in the sense that they're a bit of, they were a bit of a yo-yo club prior to these stable years that have kind of been instigated by Gasparini um I would just you know make one last point on on Atalanta before we move on um and it's that you know I was listening to a podcast and I heard that every newborn baby um in Bergamo oh, is sent yeah. an Atalanta kit which I think is, you know, it just shows you how good... I mean, Atalanta on the pitch are very good, but off the pitch, have just sold Kuzilevsky to, to Juventus for €42 million Euros or there or thereabouts. So they have the money to keep on to the players like Elisic, like Papi Gomez, like, um, you know, Martin Darun. They have the money and on the pitch, very good. But off the pitch as well, it seems to be slick. It seems to be a real club for, for the city of Bergamo to be proud of. And obviously Bergamo is going through a particularly difficult time 
just now, but the club throughout um, has given them something to be proud of and a real sense of community. And I think the fact that they do send that, you know, Atlantica out to every newborn baby, you know, they're fully aware that Inter Milan and AC Milan are an hour or so down the road um, south. So, you know, on the pitch, very good. One of the most entertaining teams to watch in Europe, if not the most entertaining team to watch in Europe um, this season. And uh, going forward, plenty of room for, for, for that to continue. Michael, do you have anything else to add before we move on? No, I think that's a, sort of a nice summary. Yeah, off the pitch, it's amazing stuff that they do. And I um, really hope that they come out stronger uh, after all this is over. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and when, they, when football does return, I'm sure plenty of people will be, will be continuing to keep an eye on Atalanta's progress under Gian Piero Gasparini. So, if we have nothing else to add on Atalanta, I think this is a good moment to turn our attention to a certain Mr Roman Abramovich and the politics behind his time in charge of Chelsea. Roman Abramovich, uh, what, what a controversial figure some might say, what an interesting figure others might say, and in my opinion, um, he's one of the most kind of um, fascinating figures um, to, to, to have played a role uh, in, in the growth of the Premier League as, as we know it today. Um, so what, what, we're, what we're going to do now when we're looking at Roman Abramovich, we're going to look at kind of a brief overview of Chelsea's success under the, the Russian. Um, then we're going to look at Abramovich's history. We're going to look at how he made his money and how he benefited either indirectly or directly, I'll leave it to you to decide, from the fall of communism in, in Russia in the early 1990s. Uh, and then we're going to look at how he adapted his political approach, shall we say, to, to kind of um, remain in favour when Vlad Vladimir Putin um, uh, took, took the reins in, in Russia. And then we're going to look at why exactly do we not see, or perhaps why we don't see Roman Abramovich at Stamford Bridge anymore. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but, you know, when I was growing up watching Match of the Day, I remember it well seeing Abramovich um, having a laugh and a joke and along with other members of the Stamford Bridge hierarchy um, at Chelsea home matches. I don't know if you guys remember that, but certainly growing up, that was something I remember well. And yeah, over the last couple of years, over the last few years, we don't seem to have seen that presence anymore. So we're going to look at why or one of the reasons why perhaps um, we don't see Roman Abramovich at Stamford Bridge anymore. So I think perhaps the best place to start is to go back to, to, to 2003 when um, Mr Abramovich took over Chelsea um, and essentially bought the club. The first game of um, Abramovich's Premier League era was on August 17th, 2003. Um, and, and since then, Abramovich has injected billions into the club um, but I think perhaps the most notable aspect of Abramovich's time at Stamford Bridge is that um, since he took over, um, Chelsea have won more trophies than any other English team. They've won five Premier League titles, six FA Cups, three League Cups, a Champions League and two Europa League trophies. So that in itself is, is quite a staggering um, list of, of honours. But there is so much more to Abramovich's time at Chelsea uh, than just kind of success on the field because off the field the more I read into this the more I looked into it um, the more apparent it became that Abramovich is, is entangled perhaps in, in quite a complex web of, of Russian politics um, 
I'm just going to, at the outset, kind of um, list some of the the, um, the the key players, if we like, um, in the in the kind of um, Abramovich story. First of all, you've got Boris Yeltsin, who who became the president of, of Russia in 1991. We've also got Vladimir Putin who took over when Yeltsin had to step down in 1998. We've got Boris Berezovsky, who was a business associate of Roman Abramovich and who ultimately committed suicide um, a few years ago. Um, we've got Sergei, Sergei Skripal, who you may remember as the victim of an assassination attempt in Salisbury, um, a quite bizarre story. Um, and then we've got Alexander Litvinenko, who, who was a Russian spy with connections to Boris Berezovsky. Um, so that's just you know a very high-level summary of some of the figures that are involved in the Roman Abramovich story. And the more you look into this, the more it does become quite alarming. Um, and you know perhaps there is a lot more um, than, than meets the eye when it comes to Mr. Abramovich and, and his wealth. But I think. Perhaps, um, you know, to explain his wealth, we have to go back to, to the kind of early 1990s and the political backdrop of, of Russia. So, um, Mr. Abramovich had um, completed his national service with the Russian army in 1986. And at that time, Mikhail Gorbachev had been in charge of the Soviet Union. Um, but really, Russia was was in quite quite some state, and, and it was kind of creaking. I think is, is the word that a lot of commentators um, use, and that's quite an accurate way of describing it. Um, in the early nineteen nineties, um, the Soviet Union collapses and gave opportunistic entrepreneurs like Abramovich um, the chance to make some serious money, some serious cash. Uh, and Abramovich who started off um, with a kind of toy. Uh, company, you know, specialising in the sale of rubber ducks. Abramovich then moves into to the oil industry and that's when he starts to make serious money. Um, perhaps one of the most fateful encounters um, for, you know, Chelsea's perspective and for Abramovich's um, perspective is a meeting um, in 1994 on, on a cruise ship, um, on, a, on a yacht um, with some of Russia's leading oligarch, some of Russia's leading businessmen. And on that ship, um, Roman Abramovich meets um, Boris Berezovsky, uh, who was extremely business-minded and, and had, had an eye um, for profit. Um, and he, he'd made his, his money essentially in trading cars. Um, and the two came together and it was almost, you know, certainly initially at least, a match made in heaven. Um, Berezovsky, to give you some background on him, he, he was one of... Um, he, he resided in London and he was, um, shall we say, a controversial figure to say the least. He'd fled to the United Kingdom from Russia in 2000 and he'd been granted political asylum in 2003. And he'd developed an extensive circle of, of business and political associates. Um, and the most prominent, arguably, was Alexander Litvinenko, um, who you remember was the secret police agent who died of polonium poisoning in London in November 2006. So Abramovich there, you know, within two contacts, straight away has, has a link to kind of quite controversial politics. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you've got that initial relationship between Berezovsky and Abramovich, um, and that's kind of 1994 when um, that kind of takes place. To understand just how they made uh, as much money as they did, um, Boris Yeltsin then comes into the equation. He'd been elected Russia's first communist 
president in 1991, and he'd embarked on a series of free market reforms. He was essentially transforming um, communist Russia and, and, into, you know, the, 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 the environment that it is today. It gets to 1996 and Boris Yeltsin is up for re-election, but his, his popularity isn't great and he, he's needing money and he's needing good press. So with that in mind, he strikes a deal with um, Russia's oligarchs and essentially, you know, that group of oligarchs includes Mr Abramovich, it includes Mr Berezovsky, the two business partners, and in return for ensuring his election, Abramovich and Berezovsky would be given first dibs on the prize, the privatisation of really valuable state assets. So Yeltsin inevitably wins the, the election and, and, and regains his presidency. And Russia's valuable state assets have sold at a fraction of the market price. So um, in terms of Abramovich and Berezovsky, they were able to buy Sibneft for $100 million dollars which, yes, is a lot of money, but in the grand scheme of things, Sibneth was um, worth in the region of, of billions. Um, so overnight, almost, Abramovich and Berezovsky become, you know, massive billionaires at a time when a lot of Russians are, are, are struggling just to even get by day to day. Um, and as a result, you know, Abramovich and, and, and the other oligarchs become quite despised. And that is important because that then has consequences for... Um, Abramovich and the other oligarchs when other oligarchs when Vladimir Putin comes into power um, it all seemed to be going too well and it was all too good to be true um, because Boris Yeltsin then due to ill health and um, other issues is, is forced to step down at the end of the 1990s uh, and that kind of coincided with the collapse of the Russian ruble in 1998 so there were a lot of issues in the in the background which um you know, had an impact on, on Abramovich and, and his relationship with Berezovsky, but we'll, we'll get on to that. Um, Boris Yeltsin's replacement is someone that, that we'll, we'll know well, um, everyone will know well, Vladimir Putin, one of the most controversial figures um, in the world today, not even just in the world of politics, but in the world generally. Um, so Vladimir Putin comes into power in 1998, and a lot of the oligarchs, really didn't see Putin as a threat. They, they were thinking of him as this kind of like, kind of, uh, not imposter, but so, someone who'd, who'd come in and really didn't pose a threat. So they, they all had their own ideas, their own ambitions for power, and they openly opposed Putin. And one of those opposers was Boris Berezovsky. But Abramovich was smart and could see that Putin did pose a threat and could see, yes, there, there was a threat there, but also that there was an opportunity for him to side with Putin at a time when a lot of the oligarchs were um, openly opposing Putin. And that decision, that foresight from Abramovich was crucial in allowing him to progress and ultimately allowing him to become the owner of Chelsea and, and give Chelsea the success that, that they have experienced over the last 17 years or so. So a number of the oligarchs are, are jailed and their assets are seized um, but Abramovich is essentially let off, uh, and, and the suggestion, and this is a suggestion which Abramovich and his lawyers vehemently deny, but the suggestion is that Abramovich paid a form of tribute to Putin and kind of um, abandoned any hopes of his own um, political aspirations. Um, and this this point was the beginning of the end for Berezovsky's relationship with Abramovich. Berezovsky took one anti-Putin route, Abramovich took the other very much pro-Putin Putin route, and this eventually leads to, you know, the lengthy court case in 2012 between Berezovsky and Abramovich. Um, Berezovsky 
claimed for billions from Abramovich um, in the English courts, um, and Lady Gloucester um, or eventually finds in favour of, of Abramovich. So Berezovsky's left um, in ruins, essentially. But he claimed that the decision um, that day, um, the court, the court, the judgment itself goes on for hundreds and hundreds of pages. It, it really is quite a meaty read, which lays bare just how much um, influence uh, Abramovich et al. had on Russian politics from the 1990s and into the early 2000s. I mean, it's not a riveting read, but there are parts of it which are quite um, alarming. So Berezovsky loses his claims for billions. um, And then, you know, a year later, um, Berezovsky is found dead by what appeared to be suicide, but... Um, you know the investigation into that was was left with an open verdict, which uh, suggests that you know there was there was more to to, to Berezovsky's death than meets the, the eye. So you've got Abramovich who who had developed this obscene wealth, um, who had really um, benefited from the fall of communism in Russia, from the political you know greed perhaps of, of Boris Yeltsin. And, you know, excellent foresight to realise that Putin was someone he needed to get on side with. So, arguably, those three fateful events, the, the meeting with Berezovsky in 94, Yeltsin's need to, you know, gain good press for re-election in 96, and then Putin um, coming to power in 1998. Three very fateful events for Abramovich, and ultimately the fate of Chelsea Football Club. In 2005, Abramovich sells Sibneft to Gazprom, um, in 2000, as I said, in 2005, for over 13 billion dollars, and that was done with the Kremlin's blessing. Blessing. You might remember, um, you know, Gazprom. I'm not sure if they still are, but they were sponsors of Schalke um, for a while. And Vladimir Putin had close links to Gazprom. And quite interestingly, when I was doing my reading, this is a side note, but Putin himself had tried to kind of block the transfer of Manuel Neuer to Bayern Munich in 2011 because he had such close links with Gazprom, and he was quite keen to block that move. So, again, you see Putin kind of having an impact on, on football. As we know, he has an impact on so many um, aspects of everyday life that we don't even realise, but that one in particular did get me. So, Abramovich, that's how he made his wealth. That's his connections with, with Boris Yeltsin and, and subsequently with Vladimir Putin. And, and I'm sure, um, you know, a lot of people perhaps don't realise just how important the the collapse of, of you know, communism in Russia has been for for Chelsea's rise. Um, you you would be forgiven for thinking that, that Abramovich's um, political uh, ties end there, or political problems, shall we say, end there. Um, but another event um, in twenty eighteen, March twenty eighteen, has had um, significant consequences for Mister Abramovich and his ability to to live and work um, in the United Kingdom. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier at the start of this segment about remembering seeing Abramovich having a laugh and kind of um, with the other members of the Chelsea hierarchy and kind of looking on, sometimes not always in favour at, at the performances on the pitch, um, but always with that kind of um, roughly beard, roughly beard. And um, it was almost kind of a, quite an iconic sight. But over the last few years, we've seen less and less of Mr Abramovich. And, and why is that? Um, essentially, although this is not being confirmed, it, it stems back to... Um, the attempted assassination of former Russian spy Sergei Skripal in the English town of Salisbury in 2018. You, you'll probably remember this. It hit the BBC headlines and really rocked um, political relations between the Kremlin and and, um, and the United Kingdom. 
Um, so on 4th March 2018, Skripal and his daughter Yulia um, were poisoned with a Novichek nerve agent, which could be dated back to the Soviet era. Uh, and what was really striking was that this was the first time a chemical weapon had been used on European soil since the Second World War. Russia, of course, denied any involvement with the attack, but the British government maintained that it had proof that Moscow was responsible. Um, so, you know, when we look at why Abramovich has, has um, been absent from Stamford Bridge, you've got this nervision attack the attempt and the attempted assassination and Vladimir Putin um, all playing a role because those, um, you know, in charge, those with political power in the United Kingdom and, and their advisors realised that the way to get to Russia and the way to really um, kind of, shall we say, annoy, not annoy, but um, tick off um, those in power in Russia was was not through diplomatic means. It was not through, I mean, I mean, members of the royal family, for example, decided that they would not be visiting Russia for the 2018 World Cup that year. But the way to really get at Putin and the Kremlin was through economic means. So um, the British government had, prior to the Salisbury attack, the British government had not been keen to move against the Russian oligarchs who'd set up camp in London. Um, they'd, they'd, they'd adopted a laissez-faire approach um, and they've been happy enough to provide them with investor visas, but Salisbury signalled a change in attitudes of sorts. And in the aftermath of Salisbury, the British government announced it would be reviewing all investment visas for Russian citizens. Um, in May 2018, um, the government delayed reviewing Mr Abramovich's Tier 1 investor visa. I mean, this visa is designed to allow high net worth individuals from outside the European Union to live and invest in the UK. So, with his application for renewal delayed, Mr Abramovich was, was unable to work in the United Kingdom. He didn't have any right to, to live and work here. So certainly the timing of that coincided, you know, a couple of months after the Salisbury attack and kind of ill feeling between the two countries, perhaps as a coincidence, but, you know, there are inferences there for, for some of us to draw. Um, Abramovich then looks for a temporary solution. And, and one of his ideas was that he could apply for a visa to live in Switzerland, um, that application was refused. A police letter was disclosed, and I'm not going to go into the, the ins and outs of that letter because the reasons given in that letter were never actually evidenced. But suffice to say that there were suggestions of, of of quite significant wrongdoing. But again, they were they were never proven, and, and Abramovich's lawyers vehemently denied those. So Abramovich then thinks, well, what can he do? You know, you, you know, in in Russia, perhaps he's um, Still, people frown upon him. Still, people despise him, arguably because of his exploitation of, you know, Russian state assets at a time when a lot of people were struggling to to put food on plate for their family. Um, but Abramovich, as a Russian Jew, had an immediate right to Israeli citizenship, and that was under Israel's um, law of return. So Abramovich isn't exactly banned from entering the UK, but he can he can enter freely under Israeli passport without a visa for up to six months. But he is strictly prohibited from. Um, working so that is why and you know surely working as the owner of Chelsea Football Club would, would entail um, you know attending Stamford Bridge so I think perhaps Abramovich is, is unwilling to take that risk um, you know in fear of, of, of some of the political consequences so really you know arguably more so than any other owner in the Premier League politics have played a huge role in Abramovich's wealth and Abramovich's subsequent movement and I think for me it's, it's a fascinating story um, when you look at the fall of communism in Russia 
um, Boris Yeltsin's role, Vladimir Putin's role, um, a Novichok, Novichok um, attack uh, on, on a Russian um, diplomat who, who, you know, had 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 links both with the Kremlin and the United Kingdom, supposedly, um, and that has all played a role in essentially in what we have seen on on the field today. Um, it'll be interesting to see moving forward what Mr Abramovich does. I think the, the indication from some camps had been that he was wanting to sell, but he has continued to invest money in the club off on and off the field. I know that you know they had the transfer embargo. It'll be interesting to see this coming summer just, just what Abramovich does. Um but for me this is this is a story embroiled in, in Russian um politics, embroiled in um behind the scenes aspects that we really have to, you know, guess exactly what's going on. But it is a fascinating story and, and one that I think moving forward will we'll continue to provide um, little uh, stories. Yes, Michael, you, you had a question. Yeah, I did. Um, I was just wondering, I mean, maybe those who want to take a more <clears throat> apolitical approach might be thinking, you know, one of the reasons Abramovich is withdrawal from Chelsea's, um, from his involvement at Chelsea may be due to being matched Pound, you know, pound for pound um, financially by you know the likes of the uh, by the likes of Man- the owners at Manchester City, Paris Saint Germain, um, Usmanov at Arsenal, um, or Stan Kroenke now, um, and you know all those across and Manchester United, of course. Um, do you think? Do you think? Do you think that has also played a part to it to the degree it's maybe portrayed in the media, or do you think it? Yeah. Yeah, I think that. I think that actually he has, um, you know, when, when he first burst onto the scene, he was a big fish in a medium-sized pond, but now he's a big fish in an enormous pond, you could say. Um, and I think, you know, he, he will naturally, um, you know, have thoughts about other other um, other teams and other investors. But for me, I, I know that you're trying to take the apolitical approach, but for me, this all stems back to politics. This all, you know... Ultimately, and call me a cynic, but the purchase of Chelsea Football Club gave Roman Abramovich a safe international profile, which would give him something. If he lost everything in Russia, he would still have Chelsea Football Club. It gave him a reason to continue and a reason for you know Putin not to meddle too closely. Because if you know Abramovich had stayed put in Russia, if he hadn't ventured into the Premier League. Arguably, Abramovich would have been a sitting duck. Who, who knows exactly what would have happened to Abramovich? Maybe he would have met the same fate as the other oligarchs and had all his assets seized and been in jail. We don't know. But for me, I think that politics has played a huge role in his time at Chelsea and will continue to play a huge role. Yeah, Barlow? Just wondering, obviously, certain uh, Mr Ashley is reportedly completing a takeover deal with um, uh, the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Fund. I'm wondering, like, do you think that we will hit the point where this sort of um, sport washing of these um, nefarious um, <laughs> financial behemoths is going to continue? Or do you think we'll actually hit a point where the Premier League says no mm-hmm. or fans say no? Yeah, um, that's, that's a really good point. Well, I think had the Premier League realised at the time of... Had the Premier League realised at the time of Abramovich's takeover just what would happen? I mean, you've seen it at Manchester City as well, and it's a really good, it's a really good phrase. We've seen it quite a lot on Twitter. Um, sports washing. Um, you know, some Newcastle fans are putting the Saudi Arabian flag in their Twitter accounts, and yet 
people are forgetting the atrocities and the human rights violations that are committed on, well, allegedly, um, I hasten to add, on a daily basis um, in Saudi Arabia. And, and this these, these purchases almost give a kind of, not a philanthropic front, but it gives them a front and a, a safe haven in which to kind of um, wash over or kind of like um, forget about everything that's going on back home. And it's, it's a good question, but it's a great question. I, I think I would love to see the Premier League taking a stance and saying, no, do you know what, no more. But whether they, you know, A, whether they would consider that, perhaps, but B, could they actually implement that legally? I, I'm not sure, um, you know, with freedom of contract um, at the basis of it, could they turn and say, I mean, you know, you could implement, um, you know, better um, competition laws, for example. I think that would maybe give us a roundabout way of dealing with this, but... Certainly in the short term, I don't see it being, um, you know, curtailed. But in the long term, because this is only, in my opinion, going to be detrimental to the image of the Premier League. It's already been quite detrimental to Newcastle's image. And you think, how can it get any worse than the image in terms of the behind the scenes, the ownership? How can it get any worse than it currently is with Mike Ashley? And yet, Mike Ashley is, um, you know, going back to the fish and ponds um, analogy, Mike Ashley is a relatively small fish in a big pond when compared to the Saudi Arabian um, fund. Um, so no, short term, I don't think anything will happen in terms of putting an end to it. But long term, I think the Premier League will have to necessarily because, as you say, where, where does it end? Do you have anything else to, to add on, Mr Abramovich? I, I would um, point out Boris Yeltsin. Um, you know, Michael, you obviously did some, some writing on him back in your uni days. And I'm not going to ask you to revisit those because I've already... Um, delved arguably too deep into Russian politics and the Russian economy but Boris Yeltsin um, has links to, to a, a news story which uh, made the Spanish headlines um, recently and that was that Feder Smolov of Celta Vigo travelled from Spain to Russia to meet his fiancée for his fiancée's 18th birthday party um, so on, on the face of it like breaking lockdown is, is, is quite um, controversial enough but they add into the fact that it was his fiancée's 18th birthday so she'd been 17 initially but also that that um, individual uh, that 18 year old um, is the granddaughter of Boris Yeltsin so um, quite quite the remarkable story um, and I, I think Fedor Smolov has quite rightly been been criticised for, for breaching lockdown um, and again another story that more to that than, than meets the, the eye do you have anything else to add on Mr Abramovich and his remarkable political stories or are we willing to move on to, to Danny Alves Okay, well, I, I, I will take your silence, boys, as the fact that you're um, astounded by uh, my recollection of, of Russian politics and uh, the details behind Abramovich's uh, investment in Chelsea. And we will move on now to Danny Alves and we'll ask, is he the best right-back ever? Danny Alves turns 37 next month, Barlow. Um, which is quite astonishing. I still feel like he's in his late 20s. But um, some people suggest that Trent Alexander-Arnold at Liverpool is making that right-back position sexy once again, uh, an attractive position once again. But for me, that that is extremely disrespectful to, to the talent that is Danny Alves. Do you think, well, we know you think he's the best right-back ever. Why do you think he's the best right back ever, Danny Alves? 
Right, well, first, Ali, I'll tell you that some people are unequivocally wrong, and um, I won't hear a word, a word about Trent Alexander-Arnold. Um, <laughs> right, I'll go through why Danny Alves is the best right-back of all time. I've got a number of bases on which to base my argument, and then you can tell me why I'm wrong, and I'll tell you why you are, in fact, wrong, and he is the best right-back of all time. So... Statistically, um, this is the there is no argument here. He is the most successful player of all time. He's won forty trophies. He's the most decorated footballer in history. There, there can be no argument there. Longevity. This is a guy who's been at the elite level for fourteen, fifteen years. Um, he's been during this time. He's been up there with the best right backs in the world. At if not the best right back in the world at some stages. He won a UEFA Cup Player of the Tournament award in 2006 and then the Copa America Player of the Year uh, Player of the Tournament award in 2019 which shows you the, the scope of where um of sort of like the length of time he's been at this level. Um he's also played in the best team uh, or one of the best team ever one of the best teams ever, which I think as well, eight years in that team, you, you don't play that long if you're not good. Um, and sort of his success as sort of part of Barca and Sevilla, they are both the most successful era for Barca and Sevilla in their history. Which And I think the fact that Danny Alves is a key part of that sort of goes to, goes to my argument. This is a guy that's a leader. He's got personality. He gets a bit of a I wouldn't say a bad reputation, but he gets um, he has his detractors because of his sort of different attitude and because he's a bit more energetic. He likes to sing, he likes to muck around. But this is a guy who's as hardworking as anyone else. He offered to donate his liver to Eric Abdel when he um, suffered from um, cancer. Unfortunately, he is the same guy who when being racially abused, disgracefully at Villarreal, picks up a banana that was thrown at him, eats it, um, mounts a comeback in which Barca win the game 3-2, having been 2-0 down, and then comes out in the interview afterwards and says, uh, it gave me the extra bit of potassium I needed to, um, to score the goals. And quite aside from his sort of statistics and the sort of awards, whatever, you can... You can preface those those about any well, many players could have won many awards, many tournaments. For instance, Jose Pinto, perhaps not quite at the level of um, many people, but won a lot of tournaments with Barca. But the thing about Danny Alves is he has redefined the role of right back. Um, we talked about Trent Alexander Arnold there. Trent Alexander Arnold doesn't exist without Danny Alves. He he's a player who. Quite aside from being a right back, he used to be able to control games from right back, dominate the game and be the main playmaker. He had the talent not only to be your sort of bombing up and down right back, but also to playmake from that position, to hold his own with Xavi, Iniesta, Messi. He was as good as them um, creating chances. And I think you sort of recently he's moved to Sao Paulo and he's playing a number, he's playing in central midfield and he's been given the number 10 jersey against Real Madrid 2015-16 I think it was he starts the game up front which shows you that this is a guy who he happened to play right back but he wasn't as talented as anyone he's not just physically good and can get up and down kind of thing Um, and I think these sort of 
these sort of points, all of them put together, make me think that there is no one else that was equal to him in his his era, his prime. And I think as well, what illustrates this argument, I was going back for the archives and I saw that in 2007, he was named, he was being written about as the best player in the league, in La Liga. And this is a right back. The fullbacks are not supposed to be the the main players in your team. They're supposed to fulfill a function and be role players. And then in 2009, I also found another another article which stated that Dani Alves, if it wasn't for Messi, would be the best player in the world, which is quite a statement to make about a right back. And I don't think the same statement has been made since. And so on the, on the, on the back of those points, I will rest my argument and accept, <laughs> accept points. Michael, on you go. What have you got to say for me? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I completely agree with you, Bala. I think, you know, um, Trent Alexander Arnold is disrespectful to uh, Danny Alves, but yeah, and you know we are, and when you look at the best right back of all time, we are looking at a Brazilian right back. However, not by the name of Danny Alves, by the name of Cafu. I mean, I just want to query some of the things that you said. I mean, you said that Danny Alves is the most successful player of all time, winning all these competitions. Um, these kind of arguments always do come back to it, but I think it's so crucial. Danny Alves never won a World Cup and Cafu won two of them with Brazil and was instrumental, especially uh, as he captained them to the 2002 success in uh, Korea, South Korea and Japan. Um, of course, won trophies in different countries, um, Brazil and Italy mainly, not as much as Danny Alves, but of course winning the Champions League with AC Milan, uh, winning the league with Roma and AC Milan and um, playing as a right winger and centre-back as well. A real leader, most capped Brazilian of all time. Um, I'd, I'd like to think you, you'd think Capu stands in better stead to be argued against Danny Alves and Trent Alexander-Arnold right now, not to say he won't be, or the Brazilian Capu that his range is full-back John Flanagan, but, uh, <laughs> old, um, or Alan Hutton. But we... Um, yeah, sure. For Danny Alves to be, what what do you think makes him eclipse Cafu in that position, Barlow? I, I I've readied myself for this argument, and I was actually watching quite a bit Cafu. I watched the '98 World Cup final, and let's not beat about the bush. He was a phenomenal player, and growing up, he would have been installed in my head as the best right back ever. But Cafu. Cafu was a monster at the position because he could get up and down so well because of his physical attributes. He was a very talented technical player as well, don't get me wrong. But he was very much bombing up and down. Danny Alves has changed the right-back game. As I say, Trent Alexander-Arnold doesn't exist without Danny Alves. He, He had the passing range to cut it up with the best players in the world, some of the best players we've ever seen. He had the intelligence to playing that Barca team to the point where Messi was able to come off that wing and essentially leave that entire wing to Dani Alves. Um, and and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll allow more questions in a second, but I will kill kill your two World Cups with one stone. We've There's been many a debate about sort of Maradona, Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, whatever, what have you, about World Cups. I think most of us would agree that Champions League has surpassed the World Cup in terms of quality in at least the last 10 to 20 years. 
And I think winning a Champions League is more of a measure of a player because you can't help it if you're Georgie Best and you get stuck in a Northern Ireland team that isn't very good when he may have been the best player in the world at that time. Uh, questions, please. The, the thing is, Bal, you, you can buy a Champions League, but you can't buy the World Cup. If someone was to say to me, would I rather have Scotland win the World Cup or Kumara win the Champions League? Hands down, every time I would say that Scotland win the World Cup is more the achievement. Um, I, I know, maybe in terms of quality, you, you do get more kind of sustained quality in the Champions League, perhaps. But the World Cup, for me, is the pinnacle of football. And winning a World Cup final, one, you know, something that only comes around every four years, for me, eclipses, um, shall we say, the Champions League. And don't get me wrong, the Champions League final, absolutely massive. But for me, I think the World Cup, um, you know, ranks higher than the Champions League. Uh, and, and, and for that reason, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more siding with Michael and, and thinking that Cafu... Um, is the better player. Don't get me wrong, Danny Alves, world-class, uh, an excellent leader on and off the park, excellent values, really good guy, um, and, and has you know, remained professional throughout maybe once or twice, maybe in a couple of steps, but on the whole, he's been an extremely professional individual. But I have to side with Michael and say that, Gaffey, I don't know, sometimes people remember um, players through kind of rose-tinted glasses, and I think sometimes... Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo, people say, oh, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo couldn't lace the original Ronaldo's boots. And I think, you know, why can't we just enjoy both of them? They're both excellent players. But we were just wee guys at the time of Ronaldo's, you know, supremacy um, in world football. Ronaldo had his, you know, faults, he had his weaknesses as well. But people just forget about them because you only watch the highlight reels. You don't watch the games where they had absolutely no impact on the game or the games where, um, you know, they made mistakes. But Having said that, I still think that Cafu, I think because one of the earliest memories of football was that 2002 World Cup and Cafu, you know, he's just one of these players who was remarkable. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the World Cup victories for me push him ahead of an albeit brilliant Danny Alves. Right. I, I get where you're coming from. Like, I appreciate that the World Cup is a hell of an achievement. But at the same time, Danny Alves was not put in a side that was blessed with sort of Ronaldinho at his peak or Ronaldo or Romario, Rivaldo. He was he was not in that side and he can't help that in the same way that Messi never had like Valdano and Bodachaga. He had Higuain when he missed his chance in the World Cup. And my point being is that Danny Alves might not have had the luck to conform with, with other players and win a world cup but like that that can't be a measure of the player if they don't win a world cup is it's happened like you say once every four years and croatia nearly won the world cup and i don't think many of us would argue that croatia have been the second best team in the world for the last three four years yeah i mean you you say about him not being able to sort of play in a team at that level of 2002 maybe not at the level of 2002 but i mean in 2010, he couldn't even get in the team in a player in his prime. You know, Maiton was the selected guy by Dunga, albeit Dunga did make some questionable decisions. Um, 2014, of course, that was they were favourites for the tournament on home soil. And 2018, under Tite, they were, um, for many people, the favourites as well. So I do find it hard to believe that uh, Danny Alves didn't have this chance of a great Brazilian team. But I do think 
One point I would I would accept is that it does seem to be symptomatic of the modern game. You know, would Capu fare as well in the modern day? I'm not sure he would um, because of how technical the game's become. And also the prevalence of European teams in major tournaments um, from 2006, essentially, has definitely made it harder um, for South American teams to shine on the big, biggest stage of them all. There you go, Ali. Yeah, but I know, I, I know I've, I've agreed with Michael and said that, that Cafu probably, for me, ranks above um, Danny Alves. But, you know, I, I, would, I would concede. It's not even conceding. Um, but, you know, I would say that, for, for me, Danny Alves is probably, you know, the second best right back ever. Um, and on, on his day, you know, you could... I'm sitting on that fence. It's um, slightly sitting on that fence. It's getting a bit sore. But, um, no... It, I was in. I can't remember um, if we've mentioned it yet, Barrow, but um, we spoke about it before we came on today, and it was the fact that during his time at Barcelona, Dani Alves supplied more assists for Lionel Messi than any other player. And when you think of some of the players that were in that squad at that time, and Alves was producing more assists than Iniesta, Xavi. Those players were phenomenal players. Some of them, you know, you know, we've all got mutual admiration for Andres Iniesta, and we'll look at him. Um, future podcast episodes, no doubt. But Danny Alves surpassed them with his assists. And as well, you know, you look at his captaincy of, of the Brazilian national team at the Copa America last year. In that final, the assist he provides for Gabriel Jesus, I was watching it back this morning. It's stunning and there's a really brilliant camera angle. Um, and it just shows his A, his strength, B, his composure, and C, his ability to pick out a man, you know, perfectly. And, and Jesus is a, it's not a, a yeah, well, it is, it's a simple finish because of the brilliance of Danny Alves. And he led that Brazil team, he dragged them arguably through the tournament. They had performances in that tournament that weren't great. You know, I think everyone would admit that. But Danny Alves dragged them and led them brilliantly and, and really got the most out of his teammates. And for me, when I think about that again, or maybe, maybe he was better than Cafu, and I don't know. It's it's I'm probably still signing with Michael and going to go with Cafu. But, you know, the two, for me, are, you know, in a league of their own in terms of, qualities of right backs I mean Trent Alexander-Arnold let's do him full justice he has been sublime going forward for a full suspect perhaps defensively but let's let's not do Alexander-Arnold a disjustice or an injustice I, I think he has been brilliant as well and we'll go on perhaps you know as he continues to develop his game under Klopp we'll go on to challenge Danny Alves and Cafu for that title of most uh, or, you know best right back ever but I uh, currently I'm saying Cafu just ahead of Danny Alves, and, and maybe in the future we'll see Trent Alexander and I'll push them further um, for that title. I, I will just make the point as well about Cafu. He was a phenomenal player, and, and yeah, okay, you say he won a Champions League and he won two Scudetti, but like he won a Champions League with Massimo Otto playing in his position ahead of him, and granted he was getting on for age, but Danny Alves, like you say, he was a key part of that Copa America team. He captains that side, one player of the tournament, as I, as I mentioned. This is a guy who broke his leg at, um, I think he was about 33 at the time, and you think that's that's probably it for him. He's a right back, He's, he relies on his pace, and he comes back and he dominates the Champions League semi-final, more or less as the best player of that Champions League semi-final against Monaco. Two goals and an assist. I, I personally, and I think we'll probably end up agreeing to disagree here, I just don't think that anyone else has had quite such an impact on redefining the role of a position as right back as he has. And I think he, okay, fair enough, he had fullbacks like Cafu and Roberto Carlos beforehand. They bombed up and down, got crosses in, were extremely technically gifted. 
but Danny Alves turned fullbacks into creative players. Yeah, I think it's one of these ones where we are going to have to agree to disagree. We could be here all day. It's, what's the time? It's it's a minute past one on Saturday afternoon, and uh, we could probably go on until lockdown uh, is lifted, arguing about who is better uh, between Cafu and Danny Alves. What we will say is that the two of them were, were players, you know, absolutely sublime players, so good at what at what they did. Of course, you know, both of them had you know weaknesses to their game, but every player has weaknesses to their game. Uh, it's been fascinating listening to your arguments, Bal. I think you know the counter arguments have been really good as well. I think um, you know, Bal, you're you're very much set in your ways, and and I admire that. I could listen to you wax lyrical about Danny Alves for hours, but I mean, we we do we do have you know other things. Even if we are in lockdown, we do have other things. <laughs> To be doing with it with our with our days, but no, I think. Speak for yourself. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I mean, I mean, for me, it's just well, I'll, I'll put I'll put this to you. If if Danny Alves, he'll be thirty nine, um, in the twenty twenty two World Cup. If Danny Alves, and I think he has kept himself in good enough shape to be in consideration, perhaps, um, you know, barring any kind of like severe injury between now and then, Danny Alves lifts the World Cup with Brazil in twenty twenty two as captain. I will, I will say, do you know what? Yeah, he is the best right back ever. I'll, we, I'll give you that as well, Barlow. Yeah. <laughs> do we have anything else we want to say on Danny Alves, on, on Cafu or on Trent Alexander-Arnold before we wrap things up? Uh, no, I think I'll let it simmer for a couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> we, 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 we can maybe revisit this in 2022. Um, and Hopefully we won't still be in lockdown by then. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's it's been great, guys, having 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 you both on again. Um, you know, I enjoy listening to 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 you waxing lyrical about about football. Your knowledge is absolutely phenomenal. Um, so hopefully, the listeners as well will will enjoy listening to to the two of you, and perhaps even my dulcet tones as well. Um, guys, if, if you don't have anything else to add, just you know, stay safe. I, I, I suppose um, you know. Stay sensible. Do we have anything else that we would like to say to the listeners? Just any general kind of anecdotes? No, just to reiterate what you're saying. Uh, everyone just stay safe and, yeah, hopefully you find the podcast uh, some light, uh, how would you say it, sort of easy listening Yeah. Um, during this time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Farrell, were you going to say something there? Uh, just from my own point of view, I'll uh, replug my uh, my um, fledgling blog, uh, Porsche Stamp Football. Uh, dot wordpress.com check it out if you fancy reading something um there's there's some interesting experiences in there from uruguay and argentina recently yeah no definitely do check that out guys Paul is a, an excellent writer and his knowledge of the game really comes through with his writing um in terms of the road to nowhere website we've got a post coming up soon uh, michael has guest written um something on his visit to see inter milan I was meant to be going to see Roma against Inter Milan at the end of the month, um, but with that um, trip shelved for, for obvious reasons for the time being, um, Michael came forward and, and uh, offered to write this piece. It's an excellent piece. We'll be publishing that soon on the website. That's alistairmaddensroadtonowhere.com. Um, do give us a follow on Twitter as well, at RTN Football. We're constantly retweeting some of the most kind of interesting stories from around world football and some of the more kind of in-depth analysis from some some great football writers um, across the board. So do check that out. Do check out Barlow's new website as well. And yeah, hopefully you find the episode you found this episode interesting and we'll see you next time. Bye guys. <laughs>